All right, let's go together to the book of Exodus chapter 40. And as we come to the end of Exodus now for the prior chapters, we've been looking at a lot of what, uh, as we saw last week, we moved at kind of a rapid pace through a number of chapters because there was a lot of reiteration of things that we've been looking at in our earlier studies together in the book of Exodus regarding uh, details and descriptions regarding the tabernacle worship system that God had instructed Moses to set up. And uh, in the last chapters that we looked at together, really the children of Israel at that point were spending a series of time we'll see a few months uh, we can tell from our verses this evening in chapter 40 actually beginning to then receive the offerings of the materials of the list of things that were necessary to construct the tabernacle and then they actually began to make the different furnishings and implements that were necessary for the tabernacle structure itself, the boards and uh, the different coverings of badger skins and goat skins and uh, these type of things that would be a part of the tent-like structure itself, as well as then all the different furnishings, the table of showbread and the manure of the lampstand inside as well as uh, the altar of incense and the brazen altar and the laver and just these different aspects they were building and constructing all of these things according to how the Lord had commanded Moses remember as we've been saying looking at these things these all somehow are a heavenly pattern of some way reflective of what exists in the eternal dimension. Now, I don't think we can be specific and dogmatic in regards to is there an actual uh, altar of incense in heaven? Is there an actual uh, manure there? Is there an actual tabernacle? I, I, I don't know for certain, but the Bible certainly indicates that these things are illusions to things that are a part in some way of the eternal dimension. And that was why Moses was required very strictly by the Lord to make these things according to pattern and to follow the clear instruction and the details given to him there on the mountain. So we saw as we were closing out our chapter last week, if you look with me back in chapter 39, verse 42 and 43, sort of the summation, it says, according to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work and at that point it was the work of preparation sewing the garments for Aaron and his sons for the priesthood the different uh, clothing that they would wear as the priesthood was then going to be initiated uh, building and constructing all the different boards and sockets and things that were necessary for the different furnishings that would go into the tabernacle as well as out in the courtyard and verse 30, 43 uh, here's the first picture of quality control in the Bible. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So uh, just so they had done it, and Moses blessed them. He gave the, the stamp of approval. So here's Moses, knowing it's his stewardship, and it's his responsibility before the Lord. He had received the instruction from the Lord, the blueprint, if you would, uh, the, the, the outline of how all these things were to be built according to specification. But it was his stewardship and responsibility before God as the leader of the people to make sure those things were all constructed just so. He didn't actually build them. Remember, God called Bezalel and Aholiab and other spirit-filled and anointed craftsmen, people who had 
from the Spirit of God special skills and abilities, not necessarily to, to preach or to do other things, but, uh, but to actually do hands-on manual work, to construct these things, to build them. They were gifted craftsmen. God had given them manual capabilities and talents in that way. And they were a necessary part because without them, Moses' tabernacle that he had been received instruction to uh, construct would not have come into being. God gifted these individuals. But Moses, as the steward of this, is now responsible to oversee it. He evaluates everything that's been done. I don't know, maybe if he, uh, like a quality control person, well, you know, that's, a, that's a little off there. We're going to have to you know, send that back to, to Bezalel. Tell him we're going to have to make an adjustment there. He's going to keep an eye on the crew a little bit. They, that's, that's not quite exactly the dimension it's supposed to be. But, but he examines everything. He evaluates it until it is all exactly as the Lord had commanded and Moses then blessed them for a job well done. And now chapter 40 just records for us, and much of it again is somewhat repetitive, and so we won't bog ourselves down the details. We've talked about a lot of these things, uh, but a lot of it's reiteration again. But what we now see in chapter 40 is after it's all been constructed and the pieces and implements are ready, the tabernacle is now set up. Uh, it's now erected and it's now put into uh, in a sense, practice as the worship system among the children of Israel. And this must have been a really special day, a long day in waiting as God had promised the people he would dwell in their midst. He had given instructions. And this is kind of like the church dedication day, the, you know, the coronation uh, of God's tabernacle, his place of worship being constructed among the people. And it must have just really been, in some ways, I think in the details, we miss probably a lot of the excitement and the enthusiasm that was there among the people. To us, it may just seem like details, but to them, this was an experience. This was a really special and a wonderful day as they were finally now establishing and putting together and setting up the tabernacle worship system itself. Chapter 40, verse 1 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall notice, there it is, set up. So we're now setting up the tabernacle of the tent of of meeting. So once again, as we've seen all throughout the book of Exodus, God communicates to Moses. Again, we, we read that phrase in regards to Moses. We read it in regards to Joshua. We read it in regards to many people throughout the Old Testament scriptures that the Lord spoke to Moses. But I, you know, I never want to overlook that reality that we have a God that actually speaks to us. That he wants to speak to us. That he's not a God who's distant and uninvolved. Uh, but you should know that the Lord your God desires to speak to you. And if anything, there's something about that that should excite you every day as you begin a new day. To think about the fact that maybe this person doesn't give their attention or talk to you. Or maybe you don't feel like it. But listen, God wants to give you his attention every day. And God has something to say to you. That should inspire you, in my opinion, to want to read your Bible because it's one of the clearest and most direct ways that God will speak to you. Oftentimes I'll hear people say, I just don't feel like God ever talks to me. Well, do you read your Bible? Well, 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 listen, one of the clearest ways God is going to speak to you uh, is through this. God didn't speak in vain. This is the spoken, written revelation of the word of God. We call it the word of of God. When people talk to one another and speak to one another, what do they use? Words. This is the word 
of God. This is one of the clearest ways God's going to speak to us as we read his word and things that we read in it, they resonate off the page and they speak to us a promise or maybe God corrects us or he just kind of sheds some light in regard to things we don't understand about him or what's going on in our life. But what a wonderful thing that we have a personal God who actually speaks to us. That he speaks to us. And he's not a God of partiality. Certainly he spoke to Moses to give direction from a leadership perspective. And certainly I think all the more if we're in a role of leadership for those of us who are men, who are husbands and fathers, or those who are going to be husbands and fathers, it's all the more imperative that God be speaking to us. Because we can't give direction if we're not receiving direction. Or let me change that. If we give direction without receiving direction, we're going to end up going the wrong direction. And it's not just us that's going to go the wrong direction. We're going to lead other people that we're accountable for, our wives, our children, in the wrong direction. But the Lord, he desires to speak to us, to each one of us, and maybe just a word of encouragement to you this evening, to be open, to have a listening ear like Samuel, to say, speak, Lord, for your servant's listening. Lord, I need direction. I don't know what to do. I wasn't planning on this. We, we, and Lord, we, just, we need direction from you. How are we to handle this? What are we to do next? In this whole process, we see this is the case. The Lord kept giving step after step after step to Moses. He gave them the next step as Moses came. Here now Moses comes. Everything's constructed. Okay, Lord, I've checked it all out. I've evaluated it. And he's no doubt thinking, okay, it's all built it's ready, it's constructed, I've checked over all the furnishings, all the pieces are made to specification, I've looked over all the work, verse 43 of the last chapter said, and he's probably thinking, what now? And the Lord says, I'm glad you asked Moses, here's the next step. The Lord spoke to Moses and it was on, it says, verse 2, the first day of the first month saying, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Again, notice it was on a set day. On the first day of the first month. Now that indicates chronologically we're about a year after the Exodus. Meaning this point we are now at the first day of the first month. It's going to tell us here of the second year. So it's been about a year now since they have come out of Egypt in bondage, passed through the Red Sea. Uh, we also can kind of factor in from this and some other details that as it's on the first day of the first month, if you consider the fact that it took them about three months or so to get to Sinai, that Moses spent at least 80 days, we know, in total, up on the mountain with the Lord receiving direction, that kind of gives us the indication that it probably took about six months' time to actually build and construct all these furnishings and pieces for the tabernacle. So uh, it kind of gives us a frame of reference. About a year after the deliverance from Egypt, it took about six months to do what we were studying last time, to build and construct the tent and all of its furnishings for it. Uh, and now Moses is instructed at the right day and the right hour to now set up what God had shown. In other words, Moses, now is time to begin. Now is time to start. You know, just like Moses, we want to wait until that appointed day, the set day, when we hear God say, okay, I've told you what to do, you've prepared, now I want you to set this up. Now I want you to step into this and actually begin and start the process. Uh, good to prepare, good to become ready, and to just to wait on the Lord until he then speaks on that day in your life to then step into the thing that he has for you to do. Now set up the tabernacle of the tent 
of meeting. I love how the Bible uses that language to describe the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Because that's what it was. It was it was a tent of meeting. It was a meeting place. It was a gathering place where not only uh, God's people would assemble around, but more than that, it was a place for meeting with God. And, and, and I think, what a great name, you know, that, that we would consider this physical structure a, basically that. It's, it's, it's a meeting place. It's a place not where we go through religious routines and observances, I hope. And I hope it's a place where God's people meet with one another and fellowship and encourage each other as the family of God, but that we come to meet with God, that the presence of God would be in our midst as the presence of God was in the midst of this tabernacle, as we'll see towards the end of the chapter. So verse 3 just begins to describe now, again, some of the details of setting it up. He says to him, Moses, you shall put into the ark of the testimony... Uh, remember that ark went into the back or the rear room. Remember there were two rooms in the tabernacle we've talked about. The front room, which was 15 wide and 30 long, was the holy place. And then the rear room or the rear chamber of the tabernacle was a 15 foot by 15 foot square room, which was called the holy of holies or the most holy place. That's where this ark was put. This is where the presence of God would be manifest. This is where the high priest went in once a year to make atonement for the sins of the nation upon the uh, ark on the mercy seat, which sat on top of this ark. Uh, and notice, partition the ark off with the veil, verse 3. And that veil, remember, was that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies and it was a reminder that veil that men could not just intrude directly into the presence of God because God was a holy God uh, and that veil was sort of that reminder of their sins separating them from the presence of God that we also might know that that is the one thing that separates us from the presence of God we can't just in our natural self just barge right in the presence of God you know, it's, it's a very tragic thing when people have an irreverent sort of, you know, flippant idea. Well, yeah, me and the man upstairs or you know, I'm just going to go, you know, chat with the big man. We fail to realize, look, we are sinful, fallen creatures. Whenever people had an experience with the presence of God in the Bible, they fell on their faces. They were terrified. They were overwhelmed. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. He is a holy, righteous God. They could not just march right into the presence of God. Ultimately, that veil was taken down in the person of Jesus Christ through his shed blood and sacrifice. But that veil was a visible, practical reminder that man could not just have direct access into the presence of God unless atonement was made first and blood was shed. And that was the only way that there was access into the presence of God through the remission of sins and the shed blood of a sacrifice. So that veil was put up. It's now set up verse 4 they were to then bring in the table and arrange the things that are to be set in order on it and you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamp so that as you'd enter into the tabernacle to the right was the table of showbread with the 12 loaves of bread again a sort of a reminder of how jesus is the bread of life and how we need to live upon feeding upon his life that he's the key part to nourish us spiritually in our lives and a worship and relationship with God. To the left was the lampstand, that seven uh, sort of candle lampstand there, the oil burning lamp, which was the only light inside of the tabernacle to help the priests do their work. There were no windows, remember? This was the light and it was an oil burning lamp, a reminder how Jesus is the light of the world and it's in his light 
uh, and only in his light that we're able to worship God acceptably and to walk in his light as he gives it to us. Verse four, uh, or excuse me, verse five, they were then also to set up the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of testimony and put up the screen for the front door of the tabernacle. Again, the altar of gold of incense went right in front. So as you walked into the holy place, the first room, table of showbread on your right, again, you're going to know this perfect by the end. This is my job. This will be implanted. How many times have you told us this? Repetition, repetition. I didn't, I just reading it. God wrote it, all right? Uh, table of showbread. What's on the left? Oh, my God. Lord, forgive us. Don't tell me you went to Calvary Chapel Gateway when you get there, please. Just <laughs> and directly in front of you was the altar of incense that was right outside the veil and the entrance into the Holy of Holy Place. The altar of incense, remember, was a picture, a symbol of what? Prayer. All right, there we go. Now we're back in gear. It was a picture of prayer. A lot of prayers like incense rising up before the Lord. So they set up the altar of incense there. Verse 6, they set up the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. So the altar of burnt offering was out in the courtyard. This was separate from the tent. There was a courtyard that surrounded the tent. And out in the courtyard, there were two things. The brazen altar where the animals were actually sacrificed and burnt. We'll see them as we get into the book of Leviticus, the sin offering, the peace offering. We'll see the different offerings of how the animals were sacrificed and what they were for. So they put that up. Verse 7, they then set up the laver. That was the bronze laver, remember, where the priests would wash. It was a place of cleansing ceremonially and no doubt symbolically as they'd wash in the water, like a picture of washing in the water of the word as we approach the presence of the Lord. You know, the word of God cleanses and it has a, a, a purifying effect upon our lives to renew our minds and to cleanse our hearts, the water of the word of God. And that as well, remember, was out in the tabernacle. So as you came in the courtyard, from the, the courtyard itself, first thing was the brazen altar, then that bronze laver, the basin of water, and then the actual tabernacle structure itself inside. Verse 8, they were to set up the court all around and hang up the screen around the court gate. That was like the 15-foot sort of linen fence that went around the courtyard area where it seems only the priests were allowed inside of that. The people assembled outside. And you shall, verse 9, take then the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it and hallow it and its utensils and it shall be holy. And you shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and the altar shall be most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and its base and consecrate it. So here again, using that anointing oil, again, that God's anointing would be upon it so that it would be holy. And the word holy again in the Bible is just a term that describes being set apart, being sanctified. You know, the, the word holy, you know, to, to be set apart. That's why we say God is holy. He's set apart. Set apart from what? Everything else that exists. There's God and there's everything else. That's why God is holy. There's the creator and then there's everything created. God is holy in the sense that God is unique. Unlike anything or anyone else, he's set apart. He is holy. And the Bible calls us to live holy lives. You know, be ye holy as I am holy. That we would be 
set apart unto the Lord, set apart from the world and the things maybe of our past life, the things that are inappropriate. And, and here, notice, it was the anointing oil that set apart that which was there for worship. And, and, and it was that anointing oil. And I think it's just a beautiful picture because in the Bible so often, the anointing oil, oil is symbolic of the Spirit of God. And, and and there was an, a need that it, there would be an anointing upon it so that it would be set apart and be holy unto the Lord. And, and see, to me, this is a beautiful picture because we talked about last week. This, though it was just a temporary portable structure, a worship system they set up and tore down as they moved all around the wilderness, but it was a tent. There was gold and silver and quite honestly, a lot of expense that went into this, even just for a temporary worship system. But the truth of the matter is, if the anointing of God was not upon it, and it was not set apart for the Lord, and as we'll see at the end of the chapter, the presence of God indwells and inhabits it, if the presence of God is not there, and the anointing of God's Spirit is not upon it, then all it is, is a really expensive tent. It's just a really expensive tent that has no real value in what it exists for. And truth be told, listen, we can build really expensive tents and put a lot of money and effort and you know and, and they exist probably all over this planet. But if the presence of God is not there and the anointing of the Spirit of God is not upon what we're doing, then it's all for naught. It's all for naught. The, the, the anointing of the Lord is what sets something apart as holy and the presence of God is what makes something actually have purpose and value. So basically Moses here is receiving these instructions now to get things set up and prepared. And notice in these verses we've looked at how there's a clear indication that things were to be done in, in such a way where they were arranged in order, in fact, verse 4 said, you shall arrange the things that are to be set in order on it, referring to the table. So again, God is saying, look, this is exactly how I want you to arrange things. I want you to set it up in just this way. I want these things here, and I want these things here, and, and we see how God is a God of order. God is, a, and even in worship, listen, can there be variation and variety in worship, yes, I think that's important. I don't think we ever want to become monotonous and create ruts where, where it just becomes something where we just move through the motions. But God is a God of order. You look at the book of Revelation when they worship in heaven and everything is done in an orderly way. All the people bow down together, holy, 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 and cast their crowns. There's, there's none of this spontaneous, this person's doing this and this person's doing that. And, and there, there's no free birds. Everybody's in tune with what their place is and, and what God is doing in the midst. And God in his worship system, when he establishes it Old Testament and new in the church, reveals himself as a God of order. A lot of times people want to look at order as if somehow it's unspiritual. Oh, that, that, you're quenching the Holy Spirit. You're, that order, you're trying to quench the No, no, no. God operates within order. Read the Bible. All throughout the Bible, God operates in a very free and flexible way within the structure of God's authority and God's order. That, that matters to the Lord. And so here, basically, we see the Lord telling Moses clearly, arrange this like this, arrange this like this. And I think he kind of does that with our lives. He sort of arranges things among the body of Christ in that same way. He says, look, I want you to put this person here and I want this guy to serve in that area and I want this person to fulfill that role within the, you know, the temple of God and he kind of arranges us and puts us 
as the fixtures and the stones like living stones right where he wants us to be as he's working among us. Well, verse 12 through 15 then describes the preparation for the priesthood. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water and put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may minister to me as priests for the anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations so Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him so he did so verses 12 through 15 there described then the if you would the inauguration or the 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 establishment officially of the priesthood these instructions have already been given God's told Moses how to prepare the priests what and now they're actually doing it in a sense this is like their ordination ceremony this is their ordination day And in the midst of it, again, we see the reminders once again. I know we've already looked at these things, but the Holy Spirit brings them before us again that part of what that process involved for Aaron and his sons, who notice it says, verse 15, they were to have an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations, that they were the Aaronic priesthood, the line that God chose. Not just anybody could be a priest. You had to be called to the priesthood. Not anybody because, hey, you know, I, I feel like doing that. that. That looks like a good job. I'm tired of working the farm or it doesn't seem like it's working on the farm. So I think I'll try being a priest. That sounds like a, you know, maybe not a bad idea to do. No, you had to be called. You know what the Bible says in Hebrews? No one took this honor to themselves. You had to be called of God. You, 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 the Levites and Aaron's family were the chosen people to serve in this way. There was a call of God upon their lives. But notice there was still a preparation process. Verse 12 says that Moses, it says, was to wash them with water. Now, again, it doesn't say they were to wash themselves. They were to be washed in some way by Moses. Now, don't run too far with that in your mind, but would you agree? It'd be one thing to stand there and take a bath, but another thing where you kind of have to let somebody wash you publicly. Would you admit that's kind of a little humbling? Kind of be a little humbling, a, a, a measure of maybe humility might be working in your life as you kind of had to stand there and let Moses bathe you before the people in some ceremonial way to prepare them. But again, I I love the picture because what's God doing? God's saying, listen, if I'm going to work through these individuals, Aaron and his sons, and let them touch the glory of my ministry, I've got to bring some humility into their lives. And you know what? If the Lord's going to use you and the Lord's going to use me, I promise you this, a part of his process of preparing us to be more ready to be vessels of honor fit for his use is he will find ways. Hopefully he doesn't give you a public bath and I'm not, not condoning that for here. But he will find ways to allow things to bring some humility into your life. To knock a few pegs out of that plague of pride that exists in all of us and, and to bring humility because... Humility is such an essential element to be fruitful for the Lord in ministry. To have that humility worked into our lives. And here I just find it interesting as they're washed with the water, no doubt again, ceremonial cleansing and so forth. But certainly there was a humiliation, I think, that God was orchestrating through that. And again, the anointing to be upon them. And again, we look at that to remember how, again, they had the anointing of the Spirit. And if we're going to serve the Lord, certainly not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, Zechariah says. 
By my spirit, says the Lord, Zechariah 4. So again, the, the anointing, the spirit's anointing had to be upon them to do their work for the Lord. And we see that repetitious phrase again, verse 13. We see it again there in verse 15. We've looked at it before where the Lord says that he may minister to me as a priest. And we talked about that before, how their ministry as a priest, it wasn't per se, first and foremost, a ministry to people. It was a ministry to the Lord. They ministered to me as a priest. Now, did their ministry help people? Yes. Did their ministry benefit people? And did it serve people? Absolutely. But God says, your ministry is unto me. You should do your ministry unto me. And can I encourage you this evening, in whatever way God allows you to serve him, and he wants to all of us to serve him in some way, but that you would realize your ministry is to the Lord. Because I tell you this, that that'll help you stay healthy in your heart and motivation to want to do it. A lot of times we get discouraged or disheartened or frustrated or you know a bad attitude in what we do serving because what happens is is we're, we're per se maybe serving for the people and because we don't get thanked or appreciated or that so so we but if you minister to the Lord, Lord I do this for you. I serve in this way for you and I want the words in my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable in your sight. Lord, I want to minister to you because it honors you to serve your people. It blesses and honors you that I vacuum. It blesses and honors you that I hand out these bulletins or you know, minister to young people or take care of children or do whatever my thing is. But Lord, I do it as a ministry unto you. And I tell you this, that will bring excellence to your ministry. Because if your quality control is not, was this good enough for these six-year-olds... Well, I don't teach. Uh, this drives me crazy. So if you teach children's ministry, receive the rebuke, please. This drives me crazy when I hear people say on occasion, well, you know, yeah, I teach, but I mean, it's only six-year-olds. So, I mean, I just, you know, they're only six-year-olds. So what's up with that? They're only six-year-olds. If you ask me, you probably should be more prepared to teach six-year-olds than I should be to stand up here in the pulpit and teach adults. Because it's a lot more difficult to keep six-year-olds attentive and help them understand the truths of Scripture than it is people whose conscience has been awakened and are teenagers and adults and are a little more able to receive and sit and, and actually hear and glean something. Whatever we do, whether it's folding the bulletin, whether it's pushing a button, whether it's cleaning, whether it's teaching, what, we minister to the Lord. That will make the quality of your ministry be on a whole different level as you do it for Him and to honor him. And here these priests were reminded of that as they now began their ministry. Now verse 17 says, And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its board, put in its bars, raised its pillars. And because I'm kind, I will not drag you from verse 18 down through verse 32 because it's just a reiteration of him actually then doing exactly what he just told the people they were going to do, actually putting up piece by piece where it went and telling us he put the lampstand, verse 24, in the tabernacle meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. Then he lit the lamps, verse 25, as the Lord had commanded. Look with me down in verse 33. It says, and he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar. He hung up the screen of the court, verse 33, great ending phrase. So Moses finished the work. I have that underlined there. So Moses finished the work. 
The book of Hebrews says that Moses was faithful in all God's house. That's a picture of faithfulness. He finished the work. He finished the work or the assignment God gave him to do. You know, we need more people because this generation is destitute of people who understand faithfulness, reliability, consistency, finishing their assignments, completing their responsibilities. You know, the, the, the fact of, of, of loyalty and commitment, dedication. These are terms that, that, that we've just sort of disregarded as having any value and tragically in a lot of ways it seems that kind of same attitude is, is just even drifting into the church. The understanding of, look, I made a commitment. I, I need to be dedicated to this. I need to be faithful to this. I know what my assignment is. I, I know what my responsibility is. And, and there's always going to be that temptation. I'm sure throughout the process, there are plenty of times, Moses working with all those other people. and everything. I'm sure there were plenty of times when, just like you and I, that he could have got frustrated, wanted to give up, got discouraged, wanted to give up, kind of got tired, wanted to give up. So this is just, to, could have got lazy, but he finished the work. He stood on task. He finished the work. Whatever God gives you to do, be a finisher. Finish what God gives you to do. When you know clearly God has given you something to do, Finish it. Carry it on to completion. Be faithful. Stick with it. You know, my pastor used to say faithfulness is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. If you know what God's given you to do, that assignment, finish it. Take it and bring it to completion. Jesus, remember when he died on the cross, one of the seven things he said is, it is finished. He finished that work of redemption. That's what we celebrate even tonight as we partake of communion. And notice, look at the language, verse 34. Moses finished the work, verse 34, then. Then. I don't think that's any mistake. He finished the work, then. The cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So as Moses finishes now, again, they kind of this is the coronation ceremony. As everything is put in place, just as God says, as the work is finished, it says, then the cloud. Remember that cloud that was a representative of the presence of God? We've seen it all along. That cloud now comes and overshadows the tabernacle. And two times, read verse 34 and 35, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so powerful was the presence of God and his glory. It literally tells us that Moses could not even enter into the tabernacle of meeting. That, that, that God's presence was so powerful in their midst that it was something overwhelming in the people's lives. And we see this pattern a few times in 1 Kings chapter 8, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, when Solomon builds the temple, the, the physical structure there in Jerusalem later on. Remember at the coronation ceremony, the dedication, the same thing happens. The glory of the Lord comes down upon that day and it fills the temple in such a way that it says the priests couldn't enter in and do their ministry. Again, I think God just humbly reminded, listen, this is really not all about the priests. It's not about this building. It's not about all these priests. This is all about me. It's all about my presence. And God put a real clear stamp on that when he filled that place with the power of his presence so strong and his glory was so powerful that people were just overwhelmed 
The only thing on anybody's mind or anybody was conscious of is the presence of God is in our midst. God's with us. This is all about God. And what a beautiful picture here. We see it and we see it later on, that glory, the presence of God. And how gracious, because consider, these people had to have been overwhelmed with the gratitude in their hearts towards God's grace because think about some of the stumblings they've had along the way. Remember the whole golden calf thing and all that? And God was like, look, I'm, I'm going to get rid of these people, Moses, and, and, and I'm departing from them. That's it. They're your people. And what happens here? God graciously comes, and despite their failures, he still manifests his presence, and in a gracious way he shows up at this very moment in their lives. And verse 36 says, Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys, but if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and the fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journey. So exactly as we've talked about before, we'll see it continuously in the book of Numbers, that glory cloud of God rested there among the tabernacle and as they traveled through the wilderness, and ultimately, remember, will travel around, unfortunately, 40 years in the wilderness. This is how God directed them. It was a pillar of cloud by day, which did what? Shaded them from the... There you go. And it was a pillar of fire by night. Why would that be helpful? To give them light and to keep them warm. Correct, because it gets cold in desert areas and climates in the evenings. So God sustaining them, again, with his presence, providing direction by day and night... And whenever the cloud moved, God wants us to move. Whenever it didn't move, they stayed put. But God was giving them clear direction of where they were to go and what they were to do. And in a sense, God was shielding them from the harshest experiences they could have endured in that process. If you think about it, they never for 40 years truly ever experienced the full brunt of what they really could of the extremeness of their circumstances because God shielded them during the day and he kept them covered at night and warm with the fire. And, and I bring this to your attention for this reason because a lot of times when we go through hardships and difficulties, we think, gosh, this is so hard. Why is the Lord allowing this? How could he let me go through this? And I, Listen, the reality is this. I don't think any one of us has ever or will ever experience the full brunt of the extreme and the severity of what we could and should experience in any one of our lives. Because the loving, shielding hand of God is over all of our lives, restraining a lot of probably what we could experience if he wasn't shielding us in the ways that he was. And here God was giving them direction through that glory cloud. He, they knew when to leave, when to depart. All they had to do was pay attention to the presence of the Lord. For you and I, we have the presence of the Lord dwelling within us. And he prompts us from within with the indwelling presence of his spirit. And he says, listen, I want you to go here. And now I want you to stop and I want you to stay there. And he guides us internally by his spirit in the same way that he was directing them in that way. You know, as we look at these chapters, as we come to the close of these experiences of the children of Israel, what a fitting picture as well and a reminder of, of a exactly what Jesus did. We read in verse 35, Moses finished the work. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Jesus finished the work. He finished the work of redemption. 
He paid for our sins upon the cross. He faithfully, sinlessly lived the perfect life and then died sacrificially in our place. And because of that, guess what? The glory of God, the presence of God is available to us. The Bible says that, that when Jesus came, the word became flesh and dwelt. John uses the specific word in the Greek, tabernacled among us. And we beheld the glory of the only begotten the Son of God from the Father. And because Jesus finished the work on the cross, though we often fail and stumble along the way, the presence of God is available to us even as failures and in the midst of our shortcomings. And more than that, not only is the presence of God available to us, but the presence of God literally indwells us. By the Spirit, Jesus comes and lives within us and he says, listen, and I'll direct you now. I'll tell you when to move and I'll tell you when to stop and I'll give you guidance. I'll be your internal compass living inside of you, dwelling within you to give you the direction that you need.